With that, I want to jump in this morning. If you would grab your Bibles, pull them out. We're opening to Matthew chapter 19 this morning. If you didn't bring a a Bible, there's one for you right in the pew rack. We're on page 800 if you're using one of the pew Bibles today. This morning is our last week in the series we've been calling Wrestling with God, Believing God with Big Questions. And our topic today, Divorce is perhaps one of the most sensitive, complex, evocative topics that a church can discuss. And so as we begin this morning, I I just want to say this. I am very aware that in this room, there are not only a variety of opinions, but also a variety of emotions and feelings and experiences uh, around this subject. Some of you are here today... And you are concerned about the state of marriage in our society and what you're thinking, what you're hoping is that this message really emphasizes the high value of covenant commitment and marriage vows before God. Some of you are here this morning and you're in a marriage that's struggling, maybe even just hanging on by a thread. And you're thinking, how can I go on? How, how much does it really matter? How hard does God expect me To fight. And the truth is, maybe you're not really sure what you want to hear this morning. Some of you grew up in a family where you experienced divorce as a child and you know all too well uh, the pain and, and loss of an event like this. And then there's some of you in this room who have been through the pain of divorce as a husband or wife. And you're sitting here this morning, maybe you're wondering what's going to be said. Maybe you're, you're asking, will this message condemn me? Does God reject me? What does this church really think of me? Because maybe you've been in a church where divorce is kind of like the unforgivable sin. And once you've been divorced, you're just a second class citizen, just damaged goods. Because the the church can shoot its wounded sometimes. Friends, no matter where you are today, no matter what you come in with, no matter what feelings or thoughts or experiences you've had, with this subject, let me ask that we as a church this morning might try our best to lay down our preconceived ideas, opinions, that we might drop our agendas, that we can come as a community together for for this next half hour and agree to approach this subject with grace and open hearts and tender spirits that are yielded to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that God might shape us and change us and even transform us through the opening of His Word. Can we agree with that today? Good. All right, Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 1. We got some just phenomenally poignant words from Jesus today. Matthew begins this way. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, now first off, right away, as we jump into this story, uh, as we get into this issue and this conflict, we notice that it begins with the setting. 
the, the gospel writer here lets us know right off the bat where we are and where we're headed, where this story is going to take place, and that is actually very intentional. He tells us that Jesus leaves Galilee and then that he goes into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Now, now, most of you probably don't know where that is or what that means or why that's significant. So I've got a map for you here today. This is a map of the Holy Land. You can see Galilee up there in the north near the Sea of Galilee. You can see the, the, the Jordan River coming down. Judea there in the southwest. And then just across the Jordan River from Judea, just on the other side, is this little region that was called Perea. And Perea is simply a, a Greek word that means... The other side. Not a real creative name for a region, actually, but it is where our story takes place this morning. And that's important. It's important for us to know this. Matthew points it out to us because this region was known for a few things. The people in Jesus' day commonly associated this very place with a few crucial facts that you may not realize. Two of them. First of all, this region was strongly associated with the ministry of John the Baptist. This is a place that's sometimes referred to in the Bible as the wilderness. It was John's home base of operations. It's where he did his whole camel's hair, locust-eating, prophetic-preaching, baptizing thing. This is John's spot. That's the first thing we need to know about Perea. The second thing we need to know about this region is that it was governed by a guy named Herod Antipas. Now, here's the story on Herod Antipas. We've talked about him before, and I'm sure you all remember this, but I'll review it just in case you don't. Herod the Great, not Herod Antipas, Herod the Great. This is the guy who ruled um, the region when Jesus was born. This is the, the ruler who tried to have Jesus killed. Remember all the babies? And he tried to have all the babies in Bethlehem killed? That's Herod the Great. Herod the Great actually died when Jesus was uh, a young boy. And when he died, his territory, his little kingdom here, was divvied out to his three sons. Son number one was Herod Archelaus, who got kind of the green chunk there in the south. And, and then his second son, Herod Philip, got the orange part up there in the north. And then finally there was Herod Antipas, the guy we're talking about this morning, who got the two purple chunks you see circled there on the map. Now, you'll notice that Herod Antipas, the purple guy, he actually rules the region where we are this morning. He is the one in charge of this little area called Perea, where our, our story takes place. And some years earlier, before this moment in Matthew, before this interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees here, um, Herod Antipas, the ruler of this region, he went north to visit his brother. He went up to the Orange region. He went to to, um, hang out with his family a bit. And while he was up there, he became infatuated with this woman named Herodias. Now, unfortunately, Antipas was already married. Unfortunately... Herodias was also already married. And even more unfortunate than that was the fact that Herodias just happened to to be married to Antipas' brother, the ruler of that region, Philip. Now, do you think that that stopped them? No, it did not. Herod Antipas got a divorce. He convinced Herodias to get a divorce um, with Philip. And then Herod Antipas married his brother's ex-wife Herodias, which would make things real awkward at Thanksgiving, don't you think? (laughs) 
I just, you know, I guess it did work out because they didn't have Thanksgiving back then. Anyway, in those days, back then, when Jesus um, lived, people were very interested and they were very caught up in talking about the marital and romantic and sexual goings-on of people in high places. I know that is hard for us to relate to in our world, but people in Jesus' day used to buy magazines as they shopped in the market and read about things, and it was just this whole big thing happened back then, something that was part of their culture. So now, with that whole story as a backdrop, look with, look with me at Mark chapter 6. I'll put it on the screen, so you don't have to turn. You can just keep your finger where you are. Um, this is the story, uh, this is the moment where John the Baptist and his story collides with Herod Antipas and his story. Mark 6, starting in verse 17. For Herod Antipas himself had given orders to have John the Baptist arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod Antipas gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? Now, now pause with me here just for a moment. Imagine this girl and her mother, because her mom is the one controlling things behind the scenes. She can have anything she wants. She can ask for anything she wants. She can have wealth, power, influence, land, position, title, anything. What shall I ask for, Mom? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her, so he immediately sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. You see, more than anything else in the world, Herodias wants John the Baptist dead and not just dead. She wants him dead, dead. She wants his head on a platter. She wants a message sent. Make any public proclamations about my life, about my divorce, and you are messing with the wrong lady. Back to Matthew chapter 19. Jesus was baptized by John. They are actually cousins. Their ministries are closely related and associated together by the people. And now we have been told that Jesus is in John's old stomping grounds. Jesus is now in the place where Herod Antipas rules and Herodias is still very much running the show. And the Pharisees just happen to come to Jesus here in this place to test him or tempt him and to see if he'll take the bait. And they ask, Jesus... Do you have any public statement you'd like to make, say, on the subject of divorce? 
And you can just see the disciples kind of standing back behind going, Jesus, ixnay on the divorce day. Don't do it, right? But what does Jesus do? He makes a statement, and here's what he says. Haven't you read? And by the way, that's that was kind of a jab at these guys because they were professional scripture readers. So of course they had read. And so Jesus kind of mocks them a little bit here. There's a little sarcasm to Jesus. Another reason I love him so much. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus, in the face of this trap with danger looming, just boldly stands up and he goes all the way back to the beginning, back before the fall and says, God created marriage. Not as a temporal, spur-of-the-moment thing. He created marriage as a covenant, as a gift, as an unconditional form of love and unity and oneness for his children to experience. And this sort of flippant, spouse-swapping, trade him in for a better model deal that Herod's got going on, that is not how God longs for his children to live. Cut off as many heads as you want, Herodias, and it won't change a thing because God wants something so much better for his children. Don't you, just, don't you just love Jesus? His courage, his boldness, his fearlessness. Jesus definitely would have ridden the stand-up roller coaster, for sure. <laughs> now, there are a few things you need to know here if you really want to understand this interchange. If you really want to understand this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees, you've got to get a little bit more information. So listen up, because this is actually where the wrestling begins. In ancient Israel, the teaching was that when you entered into a marriage, there were several vows that, according to the Old Testament, you were never to break. They were the vows of the marriage covenant, the Jewish marriage vows. And so in Jewish marriage, in a Jewish marriage ceremony, uh, people would make vows to three things. To A, provide for one another. They'd make vows to B, love one another. And they'd make vows C, to be faithful to one another. And not only did Jewish marriage center on these three, uh, these three vows, but Jewish grounds for divorce and remarriage also revolved around these same three vows. In other words, throughout the Old Testament and up into Jesus' day, it was taught that a person was permitted to get a divorce and remarry in the case of an extreme and consistent departure from these vows. Now, that's, those are real important words, and we'll come back to them in a minute. An extreme and consistent departure from one of these three vows. And there were two primary texts, two primary Bible passages that the rabbis would turn to when they would teach on this, when they would teach on the vows of marriage. First, there was Exodus 21. In Exodus 21, the rabbis taught, outlined a spouse's responsibility to provide and love. And then there was Deuteronomy 24, and Deuteronomy 24 outlined a spouse's responsibility to be faithful in the marriage. Now again, divorce and subsequent remarriage was permitted when these vows were broken in a consistent and extreme way. So let me give you um, a picture of what severely breaking these vows would have looked like. What would the, the rabbis have considered severe breaking of these vows to be? Well, first of all, abandonment. 
abandonment would have been considered the extreme form of breaking the vow to provide for, and thus it was a permitted reason for divorcing and remarrying according to the law of Moses. And and by the way, uh, Paul echoes this same sentiment in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, I would argue. Uh, A second example, abuse. Abuse would have been considered the extreme form of breaking the vow to love. Again, would have been a permitted grounds for divorce and remarriage in ancient Israel. And then finally, last but not least, there was infidelity or adultery. And this would have been considered the extreme form of breaking the vow to be faithful. Again, permitted grounds for divorce and remarriage in the Old Testament. So that was the common Old Testament Jewish understanding of God's law. However, and this is where it gets kind of dicey, in Jesus' day there was a new debate that was raging. And the debate went like this. Should divorce be limited to only the extreme and severe departures from these vows? Or or should it be permitted more loosely? And that dispute, the, the big argument, all came down and kind of centered on the interpretation of this passage in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. This is the part, this is the verses that the rabbis would go to to talk about faithfulness. And, and one of the key verses is Deuteronomy 24, 1. It reads this way. If a man marries a woman and becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and, and, and then the passage goes on to give some instruction. But the, the point is this, the primary phrase that was disputed by the rabbis that they were constantly uh, debating, you know, we debate Bible verses and passages and what they mean today, they did the same thing back then. The phrase that they honed in on was this little phrase right there in the middle of verse 1, something indecent. What does something indecent mean? What is it referring to? And there were two major rabbinic schools of thought on this. They're both named after very famous rabbis that lived just a couple of decades before Jesus. One of the schools of thought was named for a rabbi named Shammai. Say that with me. Shammai. You're going to learn two rabbi names today, which is kind of Bible nerdy cool. Pastor Matt would be so happy if he was not on sabbatical. Shammai. And the school of Shammai affirmed the traditional view of divorce and remarriage. Shammai said something indecent in Deuteronomy 24 meant only sexual immorality. This is only referring to adultery. That's what Shammai taught. The other group um, followed a rabbi by the name of Hillel. And the school of Hillel said something indecent could refer to anything, to any cause. And so, so here's the situation. Here's what's happening. Here's, what, here's the context for what the story we jump into. A few decades before Jesus came along, Hillel, this new radical uh, rabbi, instituted a new type of divorce referred to as the any cause divorce. It's the kind of divorce that Joseph was considering offering to Mary when he found out she was pregnant. That's a whole other story. Um, it's the kind of divorce that Herod Antipas uses to divorce um, his wife so he can marry Herodias, which is why it's, it's sort of centered in this region. And the any cause divorce permitted divorce for things much less extreme and consistent than abandonment, abuse, and adultery. The any cause divorce was allowed for things like, and by the way, I'm not making this stuff up, the rabbis of this sort of school of thought would sit around and discuss these very things. You could get divorced for things like if she spoiled his dinner, if she spoke to another man in the streets, 
If she walked around with her hair unbound, you could divorce her. If she argued in a voice loud enough to be heard by the house next door, can't even imagine that in my house. And then, and then my favorite one, if she rented two consecutive chick flicks from the Redbox video machine. No, that last one is actually I made up, but the others are true. And so in Jesus' day, there's this raging debate over the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. Does Deuteronomy 24 permit divorce for only sexual unfaithfulness, or does it permit divorce for any cause? Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Let's go back. Let's read this again. Now, now see if you don't hear this question a little differently now that you understand the context. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. What are they asking about here? Because they're not just asking, is divorce ever an option, Jesus? It's not just a random, open-ended question. They're asking him this. Rabbi, Jesus, do you follow the teachings of Hillel or do you follow the teachings of Shammai? Do you support the any-cause divorce, Jesus? Now, based on Jesus' answer, which we find in verse 9, we know where he stands. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. What camp is Jesus in? Shammai. Yeah, he's a Shammai guy. He's saying, I do not support the any cause divorce. I don't support the actions of Herod and Herodias. I agree with and affirm the traditional biblical practices of marriage and divorce found in the Old Testament. Those found in Deuteronomy 24, those found in Exodus 21. Abandonment, abuse, adultery are still, according to Jesus, the only reasons God permits divorce and remarriage sometimes. Now, pause. Because Jesus has more to say on the subject, but I want to stop here for just a minute. And I'll pause because I believe this. Far too often, well-meaning Christians have used this passage, these words of Jesus, in narrow, legalistic, and even harmful ways. And, And I'll be blunt. I'll put it this way. You mean that if my husband beats me, beats our children, is addicted to drugs and alcohol, steals money or tries to kill me, I have to stay married to him. But if he strays one time sexually, then I can get a divorce? And people have said yes. People have said that's the biblical view. That's what Jesus would say on the matter. And they refer to these verses. Friends, I do not believe that's what Jesus is saying here. What I do believe is that Jesus is affirming in this exchange that the Old Testament permits divorce for cases of extreme and consistent departure from the vows of provision, love, and faithfulness. When there is abandonment, when there is abuse, when there is adultery, God says, and Jesus, I believe here, affirms, divorce might be the only option. And women, I need to stop and say this to some of you here today. Because some of you in this room have been in abusive relationships and you've been told by the church, by a pastor, by fellow Christian friends that Jesus wanted you to stay in that marriage, that he wanted you to stay in that house. And to you this morning, I just want to say I'm sorry. If you hear me clearly on this, if you are in a home where your physical safety is being threatened, God wants you to get out, get safe, 
and get help. And so before we move on, I want to be real clear on that. If you are in a dangerous situation, get help. The pastors of this church will help you. You reach out to us. This church is a safe place for you. It was pointed out to me after the first service that I should probably also just recognize that sometimes men can be the victims of abuse as well. And so I will offer the same thing to you. So Jesus affirms God's law. Um, he, He cements it. And then he does something amazing. He does something beyond the law. He calls us to the fulfillment of God's law, to the full intent of God's law. And, and, and this is where Jesus just continues to astound me. This is Matthew 17, verses 7 and 8. The Pharisees ask, Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. You see, Jesus will now take things a step further. He'll go beyond the legalistic debate of the day and the banter and he'll say, let's get down to the real stuff, the real issue, the issue that goes beyond the law, beyond the religious rules. He says, let's talk now about what really causes divorce. And Jesus says, that's easy. It's hard-heartedness, a lack of of softness in your soul, an unwillingness to change. And the idea Jesus is communicating here is this. Even if a marriage vow is broken in an extreme way, even if there is a major infraction of the vows, if a spouse is repentant, if they are willing to reconcile, if they are soft-hearted, if they are willing to seek God and change, then Jesus says you do everything you can to save that marriage. Jesus says you ask God for as much grace and healing and forgiveness as he can possibly give you and you fight for that marriage because Jesus knows that marriage is worth fighting for. You see, sometimes, friends, we are guilty of taking the words of Jesus and whittling them down to you can only get divorced if your spouse cheats on you sexually. We just make it this real narrow legalistic rule. And sometimes that's meant that we've helped people... uh, and stay in marriage situations that are destructive and damaging simply because there has not been sexual unfaithfulness. But there's been other awful things happening. On the other hand, on the other hand, sometimes we've handed people a free pass for divorce solely because the spouse has been unfaithful sexually. I don't think Jesus wants to affirm either. Friends, I believe Jesus actually teaches this. In the kingdom... In the kingdom of God that he brings and offers, divorce should happen less than even the law permits. I believe Jesus teaches that when you have been forgiven the way we, as his children, have been forgiven, it will radically increase our ability to forgive others. I believe that Jesus would say that on your own, It's real easy to get hard-hearted. In fact, on your own, you are destined for hard-heartedness. But guess what? You are no longer on your own. You have the Spirit of the living God inside of you. And so let me say this word this morning to those of you who are sitting in here and you are in a marriage, maybe even in a marriage that's struggling. Have you gotten, are you getting hard-hearted? 
hearted? Are you bitter? Are you resentful? Is there a callousness growing in you? Are you unwilling to change or offer grace? Maybe the message for you this morning is simply this. God wants to offer you soft-heartedness again. He wants to offer you grace and forgiveness for your spouse. He wants to offer you repentance. He wants to help you to change. Will you receive that from Him? Or will you continue to head down the path of hard-heartedness that you're on? Let Let me challenge all of us in the room this morning who are married with this question. What does it look like to take one step towards becoming soft-hearted with your spouse? What does it look like to take one step towards becoming soft-hearted with your spouse again? You see, what I love about this passage, what I love about this interchange is that Jesus does an amazing thing. On one hand, he rebukes the legalistic debate about divorce. And then at the same time, he raises the bar for marriage. You see, he doesn't just come in and tighten up the rules. Jesus comes in to loosen up our hearts. That is maybe the most profound statement of this entire sermon, so do not miss it because it applies to divorce and almost every other area of your life. Jesus does not come in to tighten up the rules. He comes in to loosen up your heart. And friends, I have to say, sometimes in the evangelical church, we've done the exact opposite. We've become just like the Pharisees. We've gotten real focused on the rules, especially around marriage and divorce, and we've missed the heart of God. And there's this sort of underlying tone sometimes that runs through Christian circles. You're a little more of a sinner than me if you've been divorced and I haven't. Just, it's real subtle sometimes, but if you're divorced and you're in here, you've experienced it and you know what's there. Friends, Jesus understands this. We all live in a fallen world. A world with abuse, a world with abandonment, a world with infidelity, a world where hard-hearted people like you and me can stomp all over commitments and covenants and vows. And so Jesus says, yeah, there's some situations where divorce may be the only option. It's not a good option. It's not a fun option. It's not an option that God likes or loves or takes lightly in any way, but it is an option that God understands. You see, the verse most often talked about in church when the subject of divorce comes up, it's the divorce that pastors and Christ followers love to banter about. It's this little verse from Malachi chapter 2, and it's a verse where God says these words, I hate divorce. And, and a lot of people know that verse. But here's the, here's, the, here's the heartbreak of it. Very few people have stopped to think about why God says it. Do you know this? In the Old Testament, the most striking picture used to describe God's relationship with his people, Israel, was the picture of marriage. God comes and he makes a covenant with his people. He makes a covenant with Israel. They take vows together. But time and time again, God's people were unfaithful to him. They are hard-hearted. They are adulterous. And finally, this leads to one of the most heart-wrenching statements in all of Scripture, Jeremiah 3.8. This is again God speaking. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away. You want to know 
why God hates divorce? Because he's been through one. You see, God knows all too well that people, humans, his children, you and me, we are all, every single one of us, vow breakers. And because God understands this, he did something radical. He did something amazing. You might call it the first divorce recovery program ever. And guess what, friends? This is a program all of us need. It's the program of the cross. It's a program for sinful, fallen, covenant, vow-breaking people like you and me. And that's why any church, any church that divides people up into superior, non-divorced, first-class Christians and inferior, divorced, second-class Christians is just flat wrong. Because, yeah, God hates divorce, but He loves divorced people. He's crazy about divorced people. He died for divorced people. I've already offered a challenge to those of you uh, this morning who are married. So let me offer something to those of you who are here this morning and you're divorced. Maybe you were wrong. Maybe you were the one who strayed or left. Maybe you were the one who was hard-hearted. And maybe today, I just want to offer you the grace and freedom to just own that, admit that, ask for forgiveness for the part that you played. Maybe you need to make a phone call. Maybe there just needs to be a confession or an admittance of sin. Maybe there's some freedom on the other side of that that you haven't known for a long time. Maybe in that, there's a chance for reconciliation. Maybe in that, God might do something beyond your wildest dreams, something you could never possibly imagine. But for many, my guess is that ship has sailed. Maybe you've already done that. Maybe you've already worked some things out. Maybe lives have already moved in different directions. And the thing you actually need to do this morning is a simple thing, but it's one of the most profound things you can possibly do. And it will actually uh, free your life up in a way that you can't even imagine right now. Here's my challenge for you today. Accept God's forgiveness. Just receive the full measure of grace and love and acceptance that God has for you because that is what is available today. Not just for you, but for all of us. That's what, that's what we proclaim and remember every single week when we gather together to share in this meal that we're going to share again in just one moment. We come together The one thing uniting all of us, as different as we are, that we are fallen, broken, covenant-breaking sinners, but that Jesus, His death and resurrection, is greater and bigger and more powerful than any of our mistakes, than anything any one of us has ever done wrong. His death, His resurrection, it's more powerful than your worst sin. It's more powerful than your divorce. So to not receive his grace, to not accept his forgiveness, when you think about it, it's kind of a slap in the face to God, isn't it? It's kind of like saying you sent your son, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave, but that's not big enough for my sin, God. Friends, oh yes it is. And so this morning I want to invite you to do a little business with God. Maybe it's business about a divorce Maybe it's business about a marriage. Maybe it's just some business that you need to do with God about some sin that's lingering in your life in a completely different area. But do some business with God. And then when you're ready, come to the table and receive the bread 
and, and receive the cup and then hold on to those elements because if there was ever a morning where we need to declare this together, this is the day. Grab the elements, take them back to your seat, hold on to them, and then just a few minutes we will declare together that God has won the victory overall and that he has restored the ultimate covenant, the covenant he has between you and me. So let me pray and then we'll move into a time of communion. Father, I pray today that your Holy Spirit would take all the words and information that was shared this morning and that you would filter it down into the minds and hearts of people and that they would hear exactly what you needed them to hear today. Only you could do that. And I pray, Lord, that there are some marriages that will start to move in the right direction, that will start to become more soft-hearted, that there are some people that will make just one step back towards being the spouse that they wanted to be, that they intended to be, that you long for them to be. And then I pray, Lord, that there are some divorced people in this room who would lay down some bitterness, who would receive some healing. And then I pray, Lord, that they would feel from this church and from this group of Christ followers here, no condescension, no judgment, but they would feel the same grace from us that they feel from you. That is our prayer today. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.